Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. So, uh, reminding you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or printed paired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's get into it. We've got to start off with an obituary here from the calendar section, the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 27th, 2023. Walter Murrish, 1921 uh, to 2023, producing legend in movie industry. He oversaw. He had and two bro- he and two brothers oversaw in the heat of the night other top films of 50s and 60s, like Cla- by Claudia Luther. Walter Murrish, the last of three Murrish brothers who produced or oversaw production of a string of highly regarded films in the 1950s and 60s, including Best Picture Oscar winners The Apartment. West Side Story, and In the Heat of the Night, as well as comedy classics like Some Like It Hot, The Pink, and The Pink Panther, has died. He was 101. Mirish, who also was a strong presence in the Hollywood community and served as president of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences from 1973 to 77, died Friday in Los Angeles of natural causes per an Academy statement. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is deeply saddened to hear of Walter's passing. The organization's chief executive, Bill Kramer, and President Janet Yang said in a statement. Walter was a true visionary, both as a producer and as an industry leader. He had a powerful impact on the film community and the Academy, serving as our president and as an Academy governor for many years. His passion for filmmaking and the Academy was never that never wavered, and he remained a dear friend and advisor. We send our love and support to his family during these difficult times. In all, movies with the stamp of brothers Walter, Harold, or Marvin, Marvin Fierish garnered dozens of Oscar nominations. The tiny studio without walls, as Harold Mirish called it, grew and contracted as needed and was so much a family operation that the brothers were sometimes called the Mir- the Miri. They were su- they were among the very first independents. I don't know that there's been a brother team that's done as much for this industry as the Mirish brothers, veteran Paramount producer A.C. Lyles once said. Mirish films earned dozens of honors, including directing nominations from Billy Wilder, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Robert Weiss, the Sound of Music, West Side Story, Jerome Robbins, also West Side Story, and Norman Jewison in the Heat of the Night, Thither on the Roof. Jewison's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, the first of several films he directed and or produced with the Mirishes, also received a Best Picture nomination. The brothers also worked with many other acclaimed directors, including John Ford, The Horse Soldiers, John Sturgis, The Magnificent Seven, uh, By Love Possessed, the Great Escape, George Roy Hill, Toys in the Attic, Hawaii, John Houston, Sinful Davy, and Blake Edwards, The Pink Panther. Actors also fared well in Mirish films, including Rod Steiger, the lead actor Oscar winner for the 1967 film In the Heat of the Night, and George Chakiris and Rita Moreno, who won Academy Awards for supporting roles in the 1961 screen version of Broadway's West Side Story. Generally speaking, Harold Mirish was the wheeler dealer with the big Hollywood personality. Marvin was the quieter money man, and Walter took the 
greatest interest in the artistic side of filmmaking. As C. Robert Jennings wrote of the Mirishes in the Times in 1967, directors loved working with them because the brothers took care of an awesome miasma of agents, properties, screen rights, salaries, starved temperaments, uh, contract negotiations, lawsuits, legal clearances, logistics, billings, budgets, ballyhoo, release dates, and release cities. The Mirishes prospered because, as Harold Mirish once said, there's an atmosphere of creative freedom here. Wilder, who made more than half a dozen films with the Mirishes, once called the approach a bafflingly simple one. One of the once out of the gate, the Mirishes give you full reign and never use the whip, Wilder told the Times in 1967. When you win a race, they let you wear the wreath, and if you break your leg, they don't shoot you, they let you do it yourself. Jewison, who made some of his best movies with the Mirishes, echoed that thought many years later. They left me alone. They left William Wilder alone. They left Billy Wilder alone. They left John Sturgis alone, Jewison said in 2005. He added, referring to the production notes that are common ir irritation to filmmakers in Hollywood, you didn't get a lot of notes from the Mirishes. Walter Mirish personally produced many pictures, including The Magnificent Seven, Two for the Seesaw, Toys in the Attic, Hawaii, The Hawaiians, Midway, Same Time Next Year, and Romantic Comedy. But by far the most honored of the films for which he is credited as producing is Jewison's In the Heat of the Night. Based on John Ball's novel, with an Oscar-winning script by Sterling Silifamp, the film starts Sidney Poitier as a Philadelphia lawyer who helps a bigoted southern sheriff, Steiger, solve a murder in a small town in Mississippi. It was very difficult to get that made, Mirish told the Times in 2004, when the Los Angeles County Museum of Art held a retrospective of Mirish films that included In the Heat of the Night. People don't really realize it was made right smack in the center of the Civil Rights Revolution. Some of the movie's financiers worried that the picture could start riots in the South, but Walter Mirish refused to be warned off. I said, if it doesn't play in the South, it doesn't play in the South, he said. What is... What, yeah, what it has to say is so very important that the picture has to be seen, that there are enough places in this country where people will see and we will want and will want to see us. As a concession to Poitier's concerns for his safety in the Deep South, however, all but a few of Heat's scenes were filmed on location in Sparta, Illinois, instead of Mississippi. Yet far from a polemic, in the Heat of the Night is a human and curiously humorous story of two men forced to come face to face with each other and their own prejudices in the service of justice. What appealed to me was the relationship between these two men from opposite sides of the spectrum, Mirror said. He said making that film was one of the highlights of his career. Mirish was born November 8, 1921 in New York City and was the first of his brothers to make it to Hollywood. The son of a tailor, he had worked his way through school as an usher in various theaters, attending City College of New York and getting his degrees from the University of Wisconsin and the Harvard Graduate School of Business Administration before moving to the West Coast. His half-brother Harold was already working in the film industry in distribution for Warner Brothers in New York put him in touch with production people at studios in Hollywood. I loved movies, and I loved the idea of creating them and translating one's dreams into film, Mirish told the Times in 2005. 
Beginning in the 1940s, Walter Mirisch produced B-movies for monogram pictures, including a series of Bamba the Jungle Boy films. He was soon joined at monogram by Harold, and several years later, Marvin. When monogram became Allied Pictures, the Mirishes moved on to A-Pictures, helping to, pr to produce Wilder's Friendly Persuasion, 1956, starring Gary Cooper and Dorothy McGuire as the parents in a Quaker family during the Civil War, and Wilder's Love in the Afternoon, 1957, a romantic comedy starring Audrey Hepburn and Cooper as May-December lovers. But neither film was a big, was big enough moneymaker for Allied artists. 1957, as the studio system waned, the brothers struck out on their own to produce or package their kind of pictures without the pressure of having to justify profits. The Mirage Company kept a low overhead because it had no expensive studio lots in ma to maintain. It was housed at Samuel Goldwyn's lot, and the brothers rented what they needed to make a film. Their movies were distributed by United Artists. The initial productions of the Mirish Company, later the Mirish Corporation, were the Joseph Newman film Fort Massacre, 1958, about an embittered cavalry commander who leads a patrol through Apache territory and the 1959-60 NBC television series Wichita Town, both starring Joe McCrea. Soon, the Mirishes were heavily involved in such films as The Magnificent Seven, Cast a Long Shadow, and By Love Possessed. When West Side Story became the first movie adaptation of a Broadway musical to win the Academy Award for Best Film and swept the Oscars in 1962 with a total of 10 awards, the Mirishas were firmly established as a major creative force in the industry. A few years after Harold's death in 1968, Walter and Marvin Mirish moved to Universal Pictures, where they produced Jack Smite's Midway in 1976 and Robert Mulligan's Same Time Next Year in 1978, among other films. Marvin Mears died in 2002 at age 84. Walter Mears was the first person to receive all three of the Motion Picture Academy's highest honors, the Best Picture Oscar in 1968 as producer of In the Heat of the Night, the Irving J. Falberg Award, which was given to a producer in 1978, and in 1983, the Gene Hershott Humanitarian Award. He served as Academy Governor for 15 years. Mirish also served as president of the Center Theater Group, which includes the Taper and the Amundsen in downtown Los Angeles and the Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City. Mirish is survived by his children, Anne, Andrew, and Lawrence Mirish. His granddaughter and her husband, Megan and Craig Bloom, uh, and his great-grandsons, Emery and Levy Bloom. His wife of 57 years, Patricia, died in 2005. That was Walter Mirisch, 1921 to 2023, producing legend in movie industry by Claudia Luther from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 27th, 2023. Luther is a former Times staff writer. All right, we got a couple of the Israel stories here, starting off with uh, this one from the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Israel okays 7,100 Jewish settler homes, groups say, from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Israel's far-right government has granted approval for more than 7,000 new homes in Jewish settlements in the West Bank, settlement backers and opponents said Thursday. The move defies growing international opposition to construction in the occupied territories. 
The announcement came just days after the UN Security Council passed a statement strongly criticizing Israeli settlement construction on occupied lands claimed by the Palestinians. The United States, Israel's closest ally, blocked what would have been an even tougher legally binding resolution, with diplomats saying they had received assurances that Israel would refrain from unilateral acts for six months. The new approvals took place during a two-day meeting that ended Thursday and appeared to contradict those claims. The U.S. has repeatedly criticized Israeli settlement construction, saying it undermines hopes for a two-state solution with the Palestinians, but has taken no action to stop it. Peace Now, an anti-settlement watchdog group that attended the meeting, said a planning committee granted approvals for some 7,100 new housing units across the West Bank. The group said the committee scheduled a meeting next month to discuss plans to develop strategic area, a strategic area east of Jerusalem known as E1. The U.S. in the past has blocked the project, which would largely bisect the West Bank. Lior Amihal, Peace Now's incoming director, said some 5,200 housing units were in the early stages of planning, and the remainder were approved for near-term construction. He also said construction was approved in four unauthorized outposts. Earlier this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office said he had pledged not to legalize any more wildcat outposts. He made the promise after re retroactively legalizing 10 existing outposts this month. The Israeli government is spitting on the face of the U.S. only a few days after announcing that they committed to them that there would be no advanced settlements on the near, in the near future, Peace now said. The United States criticized the decision. We view the expansion of settlements as an obstacle to peace that undermines the geographic viability of a two-state solution, the National Security Council statement said, but it gave no indication that the U.S. was prepared to act. Nabil Abu Rudene, spokesman for the uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas appealed to the U.S. to intervene. The American side is required to stop this violation, which will not lead to any peace or stability in the region, he said. That was Israel OK 7100 Jewish Settler Homes, group says, from the Associated Press, Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Right, this next one is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 27th, 2023. More Israeli-Palestinian Strife by Joseph Fetterman Jerusalem Scores of Israeli settlers went on a violent rampage in the northern West Bank Lake Sunday, setting dozens of cars and homes on fire after two settlers were killed by a Palestinian gunman. Palestinian medics said one man was killed and four others were badly wounded in what appeared to be the strongest outburst of settler violence in decades. The deadly shooting followed by the late-night rampage, immediately raised doubts about Jordan's decision, declaration that Israeli and Palestinian officials had pledged to calm a year-long wave of violence. Palestinian media said about 30 homes and cars were torched. Photos and video on social media showed large fires burning throughout the, throughout the town of Hawara, scene of the deadly shooting earlier in the day, and lighting up the sky. And one video Crowds of settlers could be heard reciting the Jewish prayer for the dead as they stared at a building in flames. And earlier, a prominent Israeli cabinet minister and settler leader had called for Israel to strike without mercy. 
Late Sunday, the Palestinian Authority Health Ministry said a 37-year-old man was shot and killed by Israeli fire. The Palestinian Red Crescent Medical Service said two other people were shot and wounded, a third person was stabbed, and a fourth was beaten with an iron bar. About 95 others were, be were being treated for a tear gas inhalation. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas condemned what he called the terrorist, attack, terrorist acts carried out by settlers under the protection of the occupation forces tonight. We hold the Israeli government fully responsible, he added. As videos of the violence appeared on evening news shows, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appealed for calm and, urgent and urged against vigilante violence. I asked that when blood is boiling and the spirit is hot, don't take the law into your own hands, Netanyahu said in a video statement. The Israeli military said that its chief of staff, Lieutenant General Herzl Halevi, was rushing to the scene and that forces were trying to restore order. Israeli army radio, citing an anonymous official, said that 15 houses and 25 cars had been torched and that the army evacuated nine Palestinian families from their burning homes. The rampage occurred shortly after the Jordanian government, which hosted Sunday's talks at the Red Sea resort of Aqaba, said the sides had agreed to take steps to de-escalate tensions and would meet again in March ahead of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. They reaffirmed the necessity of committing to de-escalation on the ground and to prevent further violence, the Jordanian foreign ministry announced. After nearly a year of fighting that has killed over 200 Palestinians and more than 40 Israelis in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the Jordanian announcement marked a small sign of progress. But the situation on the ground immediately cast those uh, commitments into doubt. The Palestinians claim the West Bank East Jerusalem and Gaza Strip, areas captured by Israel in the 1967 Middle East War, for a future state. About 700,000 Israeli settlers live in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The international community overwhelmingly considers the settlements illegal and as obstacles to peace. The West Bank is home to a number of hard-line settlements whose residents frequently vandalize Palestinians' land and property, but rarely is the violence so widespread. Prominent members of Israel's far-right government called for tough action against the Palestinians. Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, a settler leader who lives in the area and has been put in charge of much of Israel's West Bank policy, called for striking the cities of terror and its instigators without mercy with tanks and helicopters. Using a phrase that calls for a more heavy-handed response, he said Israel should act in a way that conveys that the master of the house has gone crazy. An Israeli ministerial committee gave initial approval to a bill that would impose the death penalty on Palestinians convicted in deadly attacks. The measure was sent to lawmakers for further debate. There, was also, there were also differing interpretations of what exactly was agreed to in Aqaba between the Palestinians and Israelis. Jordan's foreign ministry uh, said their representatives agreed to work toward a just and lasting peace and had committed to preserving the status quo at Jerusalem's contested holy site. Tensions at the site revered by Jews as the Temple Mount and Muslims as Haram al-Sharif have often spilled over into violence and two years ago sparked an 11-day war between Israel and the militant group Hamas during Ramadan. Israel's government 
the most right-wing in the nation's history, played down Sunday's meeting. A senior official speaking on condition of anonymity under government guidelines said only that the sides in Jordan agreed to set up a committee to work at renewing security ties with the Palestinians. The Palestinians cut off ties last month after a deadly military raid in the West Bank. National Security Advisor Sachi Hanigbi, who led the Israeli delegation, said that there were no changes in Israeli policies and that plans to build thousands of new settlement homes would not be affected. He said there is no settlement freeze and there is no restriction on army activity. The Jordanian announcement had said Israel pledged not to legalize any more outposts for six months or approve any new construction in existing settlements for four months. The Palestinians, meanwhile, said they had presented a long list of grievances, including an end to Israeli settlement construction on occupied lands and halt to, uh, to Israel and halt to Israeli military raids on Palestinian towns. Sunday's shooting in Hawara came days after an Israeli military raid killed 10 Palestinians in near, the nearby city of Nablus. The shooting occurred on a highway that serves both Palestinians and Israeli settlers. The two people killed were identified as brothers ages 21 and 19 from the Jewish settlement of Har Braha. The head of Shin Bet, Israel's domestic security agency, attended at the uh, talks in Jordan. The head of the Palestinian intelligence services, as well as advisors to Abbas, also joined. There was more Israeli-Palestinian strife by Joseph Fetterman from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 27, 2023. Fetterman writes for the Associated Press. All right here is another one from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 28, 2023. Israeli slain in latest West Bank violence. Palestinian assailants fatally wound driver 27 as the U.S. tries to de-escalate worst such fighting in decades by Mighty Mohammed and Ilan Ben Zion. Hawara, West Bank A Palestinian gunman fatally shot an Israeli motorist in the occupied West Bank on Monday, the latest bloodshed in fighting that showed no signs of slowing. The slaying occurred a day after a Palestinian gunman killed two Israelis in the northern West Bank, triggering a rampage in which Israeli settlers torched dozens of cars and homes in a Palestinian town. It was the worst such violence in decades. The Israeli army said Monday's attackers opened fire at an Israeli car near the Palestinian city of Jericho, hitting the motorist. The assailants traveling in one vehicle drove farther and fired again, the army said. The attackers then burned their vehicle and fled, uh, setting off a manhunt. The 27-year-old Israeli motorist was taken to Hadassah Medical Center, where he died, according to hospital spokeswoman Hadar Elboim. The man was not immediately identified. Earlier, Israel sent hundreds more troops to the northern West Bank to restore calm after Sunday's violence. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government, the most right-wing in Israel's history, came under criticism for its failure to halt a surge in violence and for sending what some saw as mixed messages. As Netanyahu appealed for calm, a member of his ruling coalition praised the rampage as deterrence against violence uh, against Palestinian attacks. The Israeli army also came under criticism for its failure to move quickly to stop the rioting. 
The government needs to decide what it is, columnist Nahum Barnea wrote in the Yediot Aronat newspaper. Is it resolving to enforce law and order on Arabs and Jews alike, or is it a fig leaf on, for the hilltop youth who do as they please in the territories? The same question also applies to the army, which has thus far failed to deal effectively with either Palestinian terrorism or Jewish terrorism. The events also under, underscored the limitations of the traditional U.S. approach to the long-running Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Washington has been trying to prevent escalation while staying away from the politically costly task of pushing for a resolution of the core disputes. As viol the violence raged in the West Bank, such an attempt at conflict management was taking place Sunday in Jordan, with the U.S. bringing together Israeli and Palestinian officials to work out a plan for de-escalation. Sunday's events began when a Palestinian gunman shot and killed brothers Hillel and Yagel Yanin, 21 and 19, from the Jewish settlement of Har Braha, in an ambush in the Palestinian town near Hawara in the northern West Bank. The gunman fled and remained on the loose late Monday. The brothers were buried in Jerusalem. Following the shooting, groups of settlers rampaged along the main th uh, thoroughfare in Hawara, which is used by Palestinians and Israeli settlers. In one video, a crowd of settlers stood in prayer as they stared at a building in flames. Late Sunday, a 37-year-old Palestinian was killed by Israeli fire. Two Palestinians were shot and wounded, and another was beaten with an iron bar, Palestinian health officials said. Some 95 Palestinians are being treated for tear gas inhalation, according to medics. On Monday morning, the Hawara thoroughfare was lined with rows of burned-out cars and smoke-blackened buildings. Normally, bustling shops remained shuttered. Palestinian media said some 30 homes and cars were torched. Shop owner Sultan Farouk Abu Suris said he briefly went outside and saw scores of settlers setting containers and a home on fire. They didn't even leave anything. They, didn't, they even threw tear gas bombs, he said. It's destruction. They came bearing hatred. At the scene of the shooting, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said Israel cannot allow a situation in which citizens take the law into their hands but stopped short of outright condemning the violence. Shahar Glick, a reporter for Israeli Army radio station uh, who was in Hawara, said security forces blocked the roads into town but were caught off guard when 200 to 300 settlers entered on foot. He said only a handful of police and soldiers were there, even after activists had publicized the march on social media. The West Bank is home to a number of hardline settlements, several in the immediate vicinity of Hawara, whose residents frequently vandalize Palestinian land and property. Some police, he said, even wish their protesters well, uh, telling them to take care of themselves. For the journalists, it was clear to us from the outset as we walked behind them that this incident was developing, Glick said. It took a long time for the security forces to understand. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hecht, an Israeli military spokesman, said the army deployed hundreds of additional troops to the army with the aim of de-escalation. Two battalions were sent late Sunday and a third Monday, with several hundred soldiers each. The situation remained quiet late Monday. Israeli police spokesman Dean Elshdun said the eight Israelis were detained 
in connection with Sunday's writing and that six had been released. Speaking at a settlement outpost reoccupied by Jewish settlers after Sunday's shooting, the firebrand public security minister, Etamar Ben-Giver, the leader of the Jewish Power Party, called for a real war on terrorism and legalizing the outpost where troops were once again clearing. We must crush our enemies, he said in response to the Palestinian attack. As for the settler violence, he added, I understand the hard feelings, but this isn't the way. We can't take the law into our hands. Netanyahu and President Isaac Herzog urged settlers not to engage in vigilant actions. Marav McKaylee of the opposition Labour Party condemned the rampage as a pogrom by armed militias of the West, ba of West Bank settlers. In the ruling coalition, some fanned the flames. Sika uh, Faghi, a lawmaker from Ben Giver's Jewish Power Party, said the rampage would help deter Palestinian attacks. I see the result in a very good light, he told Army Radio when asked about what the interviewer referred to as a pogrom. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas said he held the Israeli government responsible for what he called the terrorist acts carried out by settlers under the protection of the occupation forces tonight. The Palestinians claim the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza Strip, areas captured by Israel in the 1967 Mideast War, were a future state. Some 700,000 Israeli settlers live in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. The international community overwhelmingly considers Israel's settlements illegal and as obstacles to peace. So far this year, 62 Palestinians, about half uh, uh, affiliated with armed groups, have been killed by Israeli troops and civilians. In the same period, 14 Israelis have been killed in Palestinian attacks. There was Israeli slain in latest West Bank violence by Mahdi, Mohammed, and Elon Ben Zion from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 28, 2023. Mohammed and Ben Zion write for the Associated Press. Alright, here is one final Israel story here from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Israel says slain motorist in West Bank was a U.S. citizen. Authorities suspect a Palestinian attacker shot the Connecticut man, a dual national, from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Israeli authorities said Tuesday that a motorist shot to death by a suspected Palestinian gunman in the occupied West Bank held both American and Israeli citizenship. It was the latest in a string of violent attacks rolling, running the region. The government identified the slain man as Elon Ganellis, 27, of West Hartford, Connecticut. A friend told local media that Ganellis had been visiting Israel for a wedding and driving on a highway near the Dead Sea when he was shot. The attackers remained at large Tuesday. Ganellis was the sole fatality of what the army said was a multi-site shooting rampage a day earlier. The army said the attackers opened fire at an Israeli car near the Palestinian city of Jericho, hitting Ganellis. The assailants traveling in, the, in one vehicle then drove farther and fired again, the army said. The attackers th uh, set their own vehicle afire and fled, setting off a manhunt. Ganellis died later at Hadassah Medical Center, the hospital said. He is to be buried Wednesday in the central Israeli city of Ranana. Israeli President Isaac Herzog extended condolences to Ganellis' family. 
Ganellis grew up in West Hartford, the son of Drs. Andrew and Carolyn Ganellis. He served in the Israel Defense Forces from 2016 to 2018, then returned to the U.S. to attend Columbia University, graduating last year with a bachelor's degree in sustainable development and neuroscience, according to his LinkedIn page. Friends and Jewish organizations took to social media to express their grief and remember Ganellis. I can't comprehend that you were killed in an act of terror. You were the kindest, sweetest, most caring friend, Stanley Block, a fellow Connecticut native who lives in Israel, wrote in a Facebook posting. There are no words to describe the unique friendship you created with every person you met. You found only the good in everyone and everything. Relatives, friends, and Rabbi Tuvia Brander of the Ganellis Family Synagogue, Young Israel of West Hartford, said Tuesday that they were traveling to Israel to attend Ganellis' funeral. Young Israel said the family was expected to return to West Hartford to begin sitting Shiva, Shiva on Thursday. The Jewish Federations of North America said it was devastated. A recent college graduate, Elon had a bright future ahead of him. Our hearts go out to his family and to the West Hartford community, and we cry together with them. May Elon's memory be for a blessing, it said in a statement. David Warren, president of the Jewish Federation of Greater Hartford, said, We extend our deepest condolences to the Ganellis family and affirm our solidarity with the people of Israel at this time of escalating violence. May Elon's memory be a blessing for his family and our entire community. Columbia Barnard Hillel said Ganellis was active in the Jewish group while attending the university, taking part in a leadership fellowship, a weekly night learning program, and Shabbat dinners. We will miss his wry humor and thoughtful manner of discussing challenging or controversial topics, the group said in a statement. Ganellis' killing came a day after two Israelis were slain by a Palestinian gunman in the northern West Bank, triggering a rampage in which Israeli settlers torched dozens of cars and homes in a Palestinian town and one Palestinian was killed. It was the worst such violence in decades. So far this year, 62 Palestinians, half of them affiliated with armed groups, have been killed by Israeli troops and civilians. In the same period, 14 Israelis, all but one of them civilians, have been killed in Palestinian attacks. That was Israel says slain motorist in West Bank was U.S. citizen from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 1, 2023. All right, moving on to other places. <clears throat> this is from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 26, 2023. Zelensky calls for more sanctions as Russia renews attacks on cities. Ukraine leaders seeks pressure on Moscow's military, banks, and the nuclear industry. By John Leicester, Kiev, Ukraine. Fighting is grinding on in Ukraine after the country marked the anniversary of Russia's invasion, with Ukrainian authorities on Saturday reporting dozens of new Russian strikes and attacks on cities in the east and south. After a somber and defiant day of commemorations Friday and a marathon news conference, Ukraine's seemingly indefatigable president followed up with a new video post day, uh, day later in which he declared that Russia must lose in Ukraine and argued that its forces can be defeated this year. In a separate tweet, 
President Volodymyr Zelensky also pushed for more sanctions pr uh, pressure on Russia after the UK, US, and the European Union all announced new measures aimed at further choking off funding and support for Moscow. The pressure on Russian uh, aggressor must increase, Zelensky tweeted in English. He said Ukraine wants to see decisive steps against Russia's Russian state nuclear corporation Rosatom and the Russian nuclear industry as well as more pressure on military and banking. Russian President Vladimir Putin said last week that Rosatom and his defense ministry need to work on ensuring that Russia is ready to resume nuclear weapons tests if need be. He alleged that the U.S. is working on nuclear weapons and that some in the U.S. are pondering plans to carry out nuclear tests banned under the global test ban that took effect after the Cold War. If the U.S. conducts tests, we will also do it, Putin said. Russia has already become the most sanctioned nation in the world over the last year, targeted with, san with sanctions by more than 30 countries, representing more, uh, more than half of the world's economy. But the squeeze on its economy, trade, and firms has yet to deliver a knockout blow. Russia's ambassador to Washington, Anatoly Antonov, called the latest U.S. sanctions thoughtless. We have learned to live under economic and political pressure, Antonov said. The experience of previous sanctions has shown that they harm the world market to a great extent, worsen the situation of, or of ordinary citizens in states that initiate or support reckless sanctions. The February 24th anniversary of last year's invasion brought no respite in Russian attacks. Still, in one of his video posts on Saturday, Zelensky asked, Is it possible for us to win? Yes, it is. Yes, he said. We are capable of this in unity, resolutely and unyieldingly to put an end to Russian aggression this year. Ukraine's military on Saturday reported 27 Russian airstrikes and 75 attacks from rocket launchers in the most recent 24-hour spell. It said Russian offensive efforts continue to be concentrated in Ukraine's industrial east and northeast. Five wounded civilians were reported in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk province, where territory is roughly split between Russian and Ukrainian control. Battles raged around and nearby Bakhmut, a city in the Donetsk region that has become the focus of the fighting in recent months, according to Ukraine's land forces. The military said the Russian troops continued attempts to break through Ukrainian defenses and circle and seize the city. In the southern Kherson region, Governor Oleksandr Prokudin also reported 83 Russian shelling attacks with the regional capital, also called Kherson, hit nine times and residential buildings, a preschool, and a medical institution. The head of Ukraine's presidential office reported three civilians wounded. French President Emmanuel Macron said Saturday that he aims to discuss peace efforts related to the Ukraine war with China when he travels there in April. China has called for a ceasefire and peace talks. Zelensky on Friday gave qualified support for Beijing's apparent interest in playing a role. Macron said in Paris that China must now help us to put pressure on Russia, obviously so that Russia never uses neither chemical nor nuclear weapons, he said, but also so that Russia stops this aggression as a condition for a negotiation. 
German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Saturday that he welcomed parts of the peace plan for Ukraine proposed by China, but disagreed with other aspects. There are things that are remarkably right, such as the renewed condemnation of the use of nuclear weapons, Schultz told reporters during an official visit to India. What's missing, in my view, is a discernible line that says Russian troops must also withdraw. That was Zelensky calls for more sanctions as Russia renews attacks on cities by John Leicester from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 26, 2023. Leicester writes for the Associated Press. Okay, and now back home to the USA. Here's something from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. Garland vows to stay out of Hunter Biden inquiry. Senate panel is told Delaware prosecutor has to total freedom from the Associated Press. Washington. Attorney General Merrick Garland vowed Wednesday he won't interfere with an investigation into Hunter Biden's taxes, an inquiry that's continuing to unfold as congressional Republicans intensify their focus on the president's son. Garland told the Senate Judiciary Committee he has left the matter in the hands of U.S. Attorney David Weiss, the top federal prosecutor in Delaware, who would be empowered to expand his investigation outside the state if needed. He has been advised he is not to be denied anything he needs, Garland said. I have not heard anything from that office to suggest that they are not able to do everything the U.S. attorney wanted to do. Wants to do. Garland's appearance was his first since the new Congress convened and came against the backdrop of special counsel investigations into classified records found at the homes of former President Trump and President Biden. The investigation into Hunter Biden began in 2018 and has included an examination of his income and payments he received while serving on the board of Burisma, a Ukrainian gas company whose board he had joined when his father was vice president, sparking potential conflict of interest concerns. Under questioning from Republican Senator Charles E. Grassley of Iowa, Garland said that if payments were made to support a foreign government in secret, that would be a national security problem. It remains unclear whether Biden might face charges. He has said he handled my affairs legally and appropriately. President Biden has said uh, he has never spoken to his son about foreign business. There are no indications that the federal government that the federal investigation involves the president. Garland also faced questions about fentanyl, a potential potent, potent opioid responsible for soaring overdose deaths in the U.S. There is no strategy that I can discern about how to deal with the poisoning of Americans with fentanyl, said Lindsay Sen Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, the panel's top Republican. Garland said fentanyl is a horrible epidemic unleashed on purpose by drug cartels in Mexico. He said the Justice Department is working to combat it, but it's a whole government problem. That was Garland vows to stay out of Hunter Biden inquiry from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times Nation section, Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. All right, and back here at home, here's an alarming story from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 3rd, 2023. Senator Feinstein is hospitalized with shingles. VP Harris has called to break ties when two, while two Democrats are out with illnesses by Jeffrey Haber, Jennifer Habercorn. Washington. Senator Dianne Feinstein said Thursday, She's been hospitalized in California with shingles and hopes to return to Washington to vote in the Senate later this month. 
It comes <clears throat> two weeks after the California Democrat, the oldest sitting senator at age 89, announced that she would retire at the end of her term next year. I was diagnosed over the February recess with a case of shingles, Feinstein said in a statement. I have been hospitalized and I'm receiving treatment in San Francisco and expect to make a full recovery. I hope to return to the Senate later this month. Feinstein is one of two Senate Democrats out with illness, prompting Vice President Kamala Harris to break three tied votes this week. Senator John Fetterman, Democrat of Pennsylvania, 53, still recovering from a stroke last year, was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center two weeks ago for a clinical depression and may be absent for weeks. Democrats controlled the Senate by only a two-vote margin. Feinstein has faced growing health challenges in recent years, including questions about whether she was up for the mental rigor of high-profile positions. Though she was in line to become the first woman to lead the Senate Judiciary Committee, the post ultimately went to a colleague. There has been speculation that she would not serve out the entirety of her term, allowing Governor Gavin Newsom to appoint someone else to the seat. In 2021, he even publicly committed to name a black woman to Feinstein, uh, if Feinstein were to leave office. But repeatedly, including last month, Feinstein said she plans to fulfill her term which ends in late 2024. A vacancy in the seat now would throw a new dynamic into the race to succeed her, a contest that got underway well before Feinstein announced she would not seek another term. Democratic representatives Katie Porter of Irvine, Adam B. Schiff of Burbank, and Barbara Lee of Oakland have all announced campaigns for the coveted post. In the short term, the absences of Feinstein and Fetterman in Washington have forced Harris as president of the Senate to return to a familiar role. She had to break three ties this week on votes related to two judicial appointments, including that of Arasli Martinez Oguim to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California. In addition to Feinstein and Fetterman, also out this week were Senators Jeff Merkley, Democrat of Oregon, and Michael D. Crapo, Republican of, o of Idaho. For the last two years, the Senate was divided at 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats, including two independent senators who caucused with them. That meant any absence could change the outcome of a close vote. It also means Harris was called to break 26 ties, far more than any other vice president in the modern era. The responsibility kept Harris frequently tied to Washington, all but unable to travel, or sometimes to even keep dinner plans in case the Senate was split in a vote. In the November midterm election, Democrats paddled their majority by one vote, giving them slightly more breathing room, and in theory, eliminating the need to rely on Harris as much. But the recent absences underscored the delicate nature of the Democratic Senate majority. Because the House flipped uh, to Republican control, the Senate has less, iso uh, less legislation on its to-do list since most Democratic priorities would never go through the other chamber. But the upper chamber still faces closed votes in confirmation, uh, confirming the Biden administration's judicial and administrative nominations, including former Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's nomination as ambassador to India and former California Labor Chief Julie Su as the next U.S. Labor Secretary. That was Senator Feinstein is hospitalized with shingles by Jennifer Habercorn from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, March 3rd, 2023. And speaking of Garcetti, 
we have some update on his status. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, Garcetti's bid for ambassadorship advances by Nolan D. McCaskill, Washington. Eric Garcetti's nomination to be ambassador to India made incremental progress this week as the former Los Angeles mayor impressed a Republican senator after a private meeting and won over an undecided Democrat. Garcetti, whose nomination has languished for about a year and a half, drew praise from a key swing vote Tuesday, giving new life to a nomination that seemed all but dead. I had an excellent meeting with Mayor Garcetti yesterday, and I was impressed with his knowledge of India, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, a moderate Republican, told the Times in an interview. A person familiar with Garcetti's schedule uh, uh, confirmed he was in Washington this week but gave no further details. President Biden first nominated Garcetti to the post in July 2021, but the ex-mayor has faced criticism over whether he knew or should have known that Rick Jacobs, a senior advisor, was allegedly sexually harassing colleagues and making racist comments. Jacobs has denied the allegations, and Garcetti testified at his confirmation hearing in December 2021. They never witnessed, nor was, he brought, was, it, was it brought to my attention, the behavior that's been alleged. Republican Senator Charles E. Grassley of Iowa released a 23-page report last year that found it was extremely unlikely that Garcetti didn't know about his aide's alleged behavior. We discussed the allegations against his aide and his response to those allegations, Collins said. I still want to review Senator Grassley's report, but I don't think that should have, that should have known it is a fair state standard to use. So I haven't made a final decision, but I was impressed. Collins's comments come after a punchbowl news reported that Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii said they, she would vote for Garcetti on the floor. Hirono had previously told the Times that she was still contemplating how she would vote. That was Garcetti's bid for ambassadorship advances by Nolan D. McCaskill from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, March 1, 2023. All right, here's something from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, March 4th, 2023. Friedman playing the long game. In wake of Lux's injury, Dodgers president will take his time before deciding what to do. By Jack Harris. Phoenix. Andrew Friedman smirked, then tried to find some uh, levity with a sarcastic remark. We're definitely susceptible if we have another injury, the Dodgers president of baseball operations said Friday, speaking to reporters for the first time since Gavin Lux suffered a torn ACL on Monday. So we've decided, Friedman then uh, deadpan, we just won't have another injury for the rest of the year. The comment was an obvious joke, but it hinted at wishful thinking the Dodgers may have rarely needed in past seasons. Usually, losing someone such as Lux wouldn't have been this big of a deal to a Friedman-constructed team. Yes, the club that had high hopes for the 25-year-old shortstop after his breakthrough 2022 performance. But most recent Dodgers rosters would have had enough talent and depth to seamlessly adapt. This year's squad isn't built the same way. For now, the Dodgers will plug the shortstop role with off-season trade acquisition Miguel Rojas, a talented veteran glove who should stabilize their infield defense. 
but after a light spending offseason in which they lost more talent than they added, the Dodgers' uh, offense is likely to take a hit without Lux in the lineup, and their depth has been depleted just a few weeks into spring camp. It's not just that it's not that the Dodgers lack a major league pedigree. Of the 12 other positions, uh, other position players likely to make the team, five are former All-Stars and two have won MVPs. Many of them, however, aren't sure bets to be everyday contributors, which is why the team seems likely to empty to employ outfield platoons and regular infield rotations. After just one injury to Lux, most of those roles might have to expand. A couple of examples. Chris Taylor and Mookie Betts probably will still play more at shortstop and second base, positions that they have experience with but will nonetheless add variables to their seasons. Trace Thompson, David Peralta, and Jason Hayward, all once expected to play part-time against specific pitching matchups, are seemingly in line for more regular at-bats. There's also a greater emphasis on Miguel Vargas to succeed defensively at second base with no natural replacement providing a safety net behind him. Without Lux's left-handed uh, left-handed bat, the Dodgers could be more susceptible to right-handed pitching, especially in the bottom half of the lineup. I think coming into camp, we felt really good about our position player group and felt, for the most part, it was fairly well locked down with good depth behind it, Friedman said. Now we feel less good about it, so we'll definitely spend a lot of time talking about the various profiles that can fit. There is no one profile, Friedman said, would work best, leaving the door open to additions in either the infield or outfield. The Dodgers have some in-house candidates they like, such as James Outman, Luke Williams, and Yanni Hernandez. They will evaluate other external possibilities, as well, as well though three men tempered any expectations that a signing or trade might be imminent. Spring training typically isn't the best time for those types of moves, he said, but we'll have conversations and see what is possible and what is not. A few remaining free agents might make sense, such as Jurickson Profar, Jose Iglesias, Andrelton Simmons, or Didi Gregorius. But Friedman said the Dodgers might focus more on the trade market if they can't find suitable internal replacements. That route, however, provides no easy answers, at least not in the middle of spring when trade prices are at a premium, especially for a team like the Dodgers trying to respond to a major injury. It's not the most natural time to make a trade, Friedman said, adding a lot of ambulance chasers came out after Lux's injury. The most likely scenario, Friedman indicated, is that the Dodgers do little for now, instead of using the start of the season take, to take stock of their roster before attempting, to, attempting a bigger trade deadline splash. The risk there, of course, is the Dodgers could stumble out of the gate and dig themselves an early hole in the standings, similar to what happened in 2018, when injuries to Justin Turner and Corey Seager almost re derailed their campaign before the blockbuster deal for Manny Machado, an eventual run for a second consecutive World Series appearance. Friedman tried not to entertain such a scenario Friday. Sitting on a chair near the bullpens at the Dodgers Camelback Ranch facility, he talked up options, the options his team is considering, optimistic the building blocks of a contender remain in their grasp. 
Obviously, the Lux injury hurts us in multiple ways, he said. But we feel like we have the talent in-house to put us in a really good position and go into July and then assess that market and then hopefully put ourselves in the best position to go out and win a World Series. And if they don't have to deal with any more major injuries, he'll take that too. They've suffered only one loss thus far, and it's already leaving them with a rare early season headache. That was Freeman playing The Long Game by Jack Harris from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, March 4th, 2023. All right, and back home to L.A. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, uh, February 28, 2023. Jewish Haven Forever Changed by Hate. A gunman is accused of firing blanks in San Francisco synagogue, shattering its sense of safety by Anita Chabria, reporting from San Francisco. Okay, it's from San Francisco. Rabbi Ben Zion Pills Storefront Synagogue is easy to miss. Just a corner shop with boxes of halva stacked in the window. But local prosecutors say Dmitry Mission knew it was a gathering place for Jewish emigrants who fled the Soviet Union decades ago to escape religious persecution. He lives nearby and is Russian himself. After a dark on February 1st and a scene captured on surveillance video, a man authorities have identified as Mission pushed open the unlocked door and entered the synagogue's single worship room, where a dozen people were sitting at a long table covered in plastic. Pill greeted them, thinking the man had come to join them. Within seconds, he pulled a gun. He struggled to cock it and then began firing, first toward the Torah and then toward the men, eight blasted uh, blast marks by the flare of the muscle. The gun turned out to be a replica, firing something like blanks, but the men in the room didn't know that. The attack was so sudden, so unexpected, that none of the congregants reacted. No one ducked, no one screamed. The surveillance video has gone viral. But not because the violence is shocking. Instead, people are watching because it's almost funny how calm the congregation seems. Of course, there's nothing humorous in this, in this assault, but such incidents have become so common that this one barely made headlines outside San Francisco. Just another alleged hate crime in a surging tide of them, unremarkable without deaths to count. In our polarizing country where extremism is being uh, mainstreamed, we are becoming desensitized to anything uh, but the most uh, egregious acts of hate. In recent weeks, a man was accused of shooting and injuring two Jewish men outside their synagogue in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood of Los Angeles. He's been charged with federal hate crimes. In New Jersey, a man was charged with firebombing a synagogue in Redding in Northern California and Brownston Township in Michigan, residents found anti-Semitic flyers at their homes. On February 15, a Quincy, Massachusetts man was indicted on federal charges for allegedly striking an Asian man with his car after saying, go back to China. That same week in San Francisco, a man was caught on video throwing eggs at an Asian woman on a minibus after yelling racial slurs. And Saturday, white supremacists staged a National Day of Hate targeting Jewish people, advertising a call for vandalism on social media. That's all in a couple of weeks. Not every hate incident I could find. Few made news outside of local press. Pill and his congregants were so certain no one would care what happened to them. 
that the shooter would not face real consequences, that they didn't even call police that night. Instead, they picked up what looked like a shell casings, the shell casings and put them in a junk drawer. Underneath the brim of his black hat, Pill has a smile that reaches his eyes, lively and kind, and tired, since the shooting, bad dreams awake him. When Pill was a child in Samarkand, an ancient Silk Road city in Uzbekistan, he was part of an underground Jewish synagogue. Being Jewish was not safe, and each Shabbat, his family would go to a different house to observe, pretending that gatherings were birthdays or parties. He remembered stories of elders sent to Siberian prison camps for their faith and a persistent fear that a KGB snitch was somewhere in their midst. His family moved to Israel when he was 15, and later he came to New York to the Jewish enclave of Crown Heights to study. One day his brother-in-law and his brother-in-law's brother saw a girl at a wedding and thought she'd be a good match for Pill because she never stopped dancing. Pill loves to dance. Maddie was her name, and though she thought Pill would be a good match too, they shared values, she said, and, des and a desire to help each other, to help others. They courted and married and moved to San Francisco in 1983, where there was no synagogue for Russian Jews, Pill said. So they started a community out of their house, living upstairs and holding Shabbat dinners downstairs. In between having kids, there are ten of them, they, fled, they fed those in need and created the connection for scattered immigrants who had long felt isolated. Sometimes the line to get in ran out the door because there wasn't enough room to sit inside. The neighbors didn't love it. Thirteen years ago, after a few other stops, they moved to this location. It's small, the size of a, class, a school classroom with three crystal chandeliers, more suitable to a ballroom hanging overhead and a faded floral carpet underneath. The Torah is on one side, the other side holds the table where the men were sitting when the, shooting came, the shooter came, the closest chair just a foot fr uh, from the door. With its clutter, hundreds of books, two fast stone sinks, a coffee station, a boombox, a laundry basket, stacked chairs, it's a welcoming space infused with a sense of community and sacredness. Despite its humbleness, it has that enigmatic sanctity of a place of worship, a feeling that a power greater than humans sometimes drops by. Pill makes sure that every day, morning and night, a minion, a quorum of ten men necessary for Orthodox Jews to hold certain prayers, is present. It's no easy task to round up ten men twice a day, and Pill is known for his relentless phone calls. But the reliability of that minion makes the congregation vital beyond its regular members. People come from all over to take part in communal prayers, such as the honoring of the dead or the Burkhat HaGomel, recited after recovering from illness or passing through a dangerous journey. Even in the wake of the shooting, Pil found his ten. Aaron Surat Saruya, a congregant from Gibraltar, is often one of them. It's up to us to fight back and think positive and have more faith in God, he said. This is a strength Madi Pill and the rabbi have built with 40 years of their patience and love. That this is what the shooter could have broken with his toy gun and hate. The day after the shooting, junior rabbi Alon Chanukov called, uh, called the police. Hanukkah is the younger than is younger than most of the congregation. He was raised in the Chabad of Poway, north of San Diego. 
where the last day of Passover in 2019, a man with an AR-15 killed one woman and injured three other people, including the rabbi. Hanukkah knew that uh, the woman who was killed. When he heard about the shooting here, he was so upset that he couldn't do his morning prayers. Against advice, he released the shul's surveillance footage. He wanted the shooter caught to make sure it wasn't treated as just like a, uh, like a nothing, he said. And on the Friday evening after the shooting, the shul received some good news just as they began celebrating Shabbat. A Jewish police officer came by to tell them Mission was in custody. So you guys can rest easy, Saruya remembers him saying. They did for a bit, until they saw Mission's social media feed, where he had posted an image of himself in a Nazi uniform and a video of what looked like him burning something outside the synagogue days before the attack. It left them with no doubt that they were targeted. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins promised a zero tolerance for hate in a news release about the case and has filed hate crime charges against Mission. He is facing two felony counts of interference with religious worship and six misdemeanor counts that include the violation of drawing or exhibiting an imitation firearm. If convicted, he could face up to 10 years, according to the district attorney's office. Mission pleaded not guilty at his arraignment. There are questions about his mental health, and a preliminary hearing is scheduled for Friday. Pill and his congregation said Pill and his congregants fear he will be released and retaliate against them, maybe with a real gun. The shul has applied for state funds put in place after Poway that would help pay for a security guard and other safety measures. But the truth is that this building, with its big glass windows and one main exit, will never be safe. Hanukov can no longer sit with his back to the door, worried who will enter. The congregation wants to move and has started a GoFundMe to raise the $400,000 it thinks it will, be, it will need. But Hanukov doesn't know if this will happen. The people who worship here are of modest means. We don't have Mark Zuckerberg as one of our donors, he said. In the meantime, the life of the shul goes on. The minion meets, the women cook for Shabbat, the men smoke on the sidewalk and front, uh, the candles are lighted on Friday night. Jews don't give up, Matty Pill said. They don't know if anyone cares what happened here, but Matty hopes they do. It's not about God, it's about oneness, she told me, about us being together as one. Really, the concern should not solely be about mission, not at uh, this chaotic moment, when hate is everywhere. It's about what makes the missions what, uh, what allows them to go unnoticed or unchecked until the, until the gun, real or not, is in their hands. Most of us aren't indifferent to hate and we feel it growing. We just par, uh, parse it in our own minds. Racism, misogyny, anti-trans, anti-Asian, anti-Semitic, and save our outrage for what hits closest. For what hits closest. But hate in any form isn't just a threat to lives. It menaces the democracy we all share. And as Rabbi Pill told me, it's the only thing we can't tolerate. There was Jewish Haven Forever Changed by Hate by Anita Chabria, reporting from San Francisco. Out of the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 28, 2023. Alright, let's turn to some entertainment news. This is from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, February 26, 2023. P.I. Returns with the Weight of the World by Paula L. Woods. 
In 2018, down the river onto the sea, the New York City P.I. Joe King Oliver slid into the space occupied in many readers' hearts by Walter Mosley's iconic Los Angeles hero, Easy Rollins. It's not that the author hasn't, uh, from time to time, located his fiction in the Big Apple. Most recently, in 2020's The Trouble Is What I Do, the sixth in the Leonid McKill series, but unlike Mosley's other black heroes, Oliver, named after the New Orleans jazz uh, cornetist, was a senior-level detective until his double-crossing NYPD colleagues framed him for raping a white woman. One of the chief satisfactions in Down the River, which won an Edgar, incredibly Mosley's first for an individual book, was watching the author orchestrate Oliver's emotional destruction and transmutation in the infamously hellish Rikers from the respected cop to a man capable of murder. Luckily, he's exonerated some three months later and spends the next decade rebuilding his life and livelihood through first-hand knowledge of how justice was influenced by circumstance, character, and, of course, wealth or lack of sane. Oliver's innate understanding of uh, the system is tested again in Mosley's new book, Every Man a King, which is set some five years down after the conclusion of Down the River. Oliver is summoned by Roger Ferris, chairman of an $800 billion corporation who is being challenged for its control by his adult children. The scenario is reminiscent of Summer Redstone's battle with daughter Shari over Viacom. But Mosley's non-agenarian is, is less interested in corporate intrigue than romancing Oliver's 93-year-old grandmother, Brenda, in his Upper West Side mansion. He'd also, like to, he'd also like Oliver to investigate the detention of Alfred Quiller, a misogynistic racist and poster boy for alt-right groups. Quiller contacted Ferris to allege he'd been framed and illegally detained in a private cell on Rikers by a shadowy branch of the government on trumped-up charges of tax evasion, murder, and the sale of sensitive information to the Russians. While Oliver has pegged Quiller as a man of towering intelligence fueled by a zealot ignorance and wonders why Ferris cares whether a man's civil rights are being violated by the deep state, he takes the case out of gratitude for Ferris's help with an earlier investigation, and perhaps out of deference to his grandmother. One bad idea is compounded by another when Oliver agrees to help his ex-wife Monica's current husband, Coleman Tesseret. The bogey black banker, who Oliver notes still uses the word Negro and was having an extramarital affair with at least one woman, has been arrested in a heating oil scam and the couple's assets frozen. While Oliver has no lingering fondness for Monica, who refused to bail him out of Rikers years back, he takes the case because of his love for their teenage daughter, Aja Denise, who works in his PI office and is his moral North Star. Propelled by his personal allegiances, Oliver pursues clues pertaining to Quiller and Tesseract through colorful parts of New York's boroughs, New England hideouts, and southern uh, no-tell motels. And when the two cases intersect, as they inevitably do in this genre, things get even more complicated. The upside is that readers are treated along the way to the evo evocative prose and astute observations about human nature, race relations, and family bonds that have distinguished Mosley's writing for some 30 years. For example, when Oliver ponders from the comfort of a hideout in Vermont how to do the right thing in a case that gets darker by the day, 
in spite of appearances the majesty of nature is just a fancy blanket draped over malevolent uh, malevolence of the creatures of earth to get these nuggets however readers will have to wade through the actions and backstories of so many characters some relevant to the plot and others that seem to be opportunities for mosley to build a stable of backup players for later use that a spreadsheet may be required to keep all of it straight reading mosley over the decades one can't help but see the thorough through, uh, through lines among his black male heroes their families and sidekicks amid the course in the developing series a few stand out Oliver's no-nonsense grandmother, whose advanced age does not deter her from taking her time before committing to an intimate relationship with Ferris, and his devoted daughter, who wants to be his partner in the P.I. firm, but recoils at the prospect of doing business with Quiller and his evil ilk. These standout familiars are joined by two formidable supporting players, Melquarth Frost, a devilish fixer reminiscent of Mouse in the Easy Rollins series, and Olia Ruiz, a new archetype from Mosley, a kick-ass female agent in the International Operatives Agency hired by Frost to watch Oliver's, Oliver Six while he stocks the complicated cases. Every Man a King is an entertaining but muddled extension of the themes that have inspired Mosley and delighted his legion of fans for years. There could be much to look forward to in future adventures as Joe King Oliver leads this engaging quintet of familiar and new players and sidemen. I only hope that, like Oliver's wise, deliberative grandmother, Mosley keeps things simple and paces himself. That was P.I. Returns with the Weight of the World by Paula L. Woods. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 26, 2023, Woods is a book critic, editor, and author of the Detective Charlotte Justice Mysteries. All right, and here is something from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. Meet the Real Fablemans. Director Steven Spielberg has always been close to his sisters, Anne, Nancy, and Sue. But the Fablemans, this film based on their childhood, deepened their bond. Story by Glenn Whipp, photo by Devin Oktar Yalkin, and topography by Jessica Molina. Steven Spielberg and his sisters Anne, Sue, and Nancy are singing along to My Girl. And not just singing, mind you. They have their own choreography pretty much down pat. Their arms and feet moving to the Temptations classic Motown beat, and they're taking such delight in harmonizing that it seems clear this must be their favorite song. Until the next number on the playlist starts and op the opening drum beat up to the Ronettes classic Be My Baby rings out, with, and within a few seconds, the siblings are singing Wa-uh-uh-uh chorus at the top of their lungs. We're crowded in a booth inside the Milky Way, the West Los Angeles restaurant that the Spielberg's mother, Leah Adler, opened in 1977 with her second husband, Bernie, an eatery the family still owns and operates. Mom was part of that harmony until she was, she was 96 years old, Stephen tells me. Just before pleading with the sick sisters to break out some of the melodies they used to sing together on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, they oblige. He is the big brother, after all. I'd be in big trouble if I hadn't been born last, Stephen says. The women do not dispute this. Uh, the Spielbergs haven't seen each other since the AFI Fest premiere of The Fablemans. Stephen's tender recounting of his filmmaking origin story folded inside an empathetic look at a complex relationship between his descent 
his decent father and unfulfilled artist mother. Stephen thought the event was three weeks ago, and the oldest set him straight. No, that was November, Steve. The sisters can still the sisters still call him Steve, as they always have, and it's February now. The siblings have always been close. The Fablemans deepen their bond. You allowed yourself to become vulnerable, Nancy tells Stephen, holding his hand. Anne takes his other hand. That's the biggest change, she says, reflecting on the lives their lives together since their mother died in 2017 at the age of 97 with their father, Arnold, passing away three years later at 103. Steve hid his vulnerability for such a long time. There was never a time when he didn't have a camera in front of him when he, was walk when he walked into a room. I always knew you were afraid of something and that the camera was just a shield. It was also a weapon, Stephen interjects, and his sisters laugh. It was also that, too, says Anne, still squeezing Stephen's hand. But the shield came down, and I think we're closer now. There's such love, such love between us. It might not surprise you to learn that about 20 minutes into our conversation, a family friend walked over to the table and quietly placed a tissue box in its, in its center. Laughter and tears. That's the story of just about every family, and the Spielbergs are no exception. Who else knows your whole big being and doesn't judge you for it? Sue says, to which her brother adds, and calls a bull on you. Stephen points to another corner of the restaurant, noting that's where he always used to sit with his mom. He remembers the time she told him that he needed to make a movie about their lives. I've given you so much good material, Leia said. Eventually, he began writing what he thought would be a screenplay memoir that he'd slipped into a drawer and show his sisters and family one day. But during the making of his 2005 drama Munich, Stephen began sharing some of these stories with the film's co-writer, Tony Kushner. Fifteen years later, he called his sisters to tell them that he and Kushner had written a movie about the Spielbergs and he'd been sending the screenplay over in a couple of days. If one of, one of them has reservations, Stephen said, he'd scrap it. Gee, I didn't know we had such power, says Nancy laughing. Had I known that... The last 70 years would have been a lot different. Joking aside, Anne, Sue, and Nancy remember exactly where they were when their brother first called them in the spring of 2020, and they can precisely summon the moment when, they, when the script arrived. I tore it open and read it on the potty, she, Sue says with great laughter. I did. I couldn't help it. It was the best bathroom reading. Stephen's screenplay contained a, a secret he'd never shared with his sisters. In cutting together footage he shot during several family uh, camping trips in Arizona, Stephen, then 16, discovered that his mother and his father's best friend, Bernie, who was a constant presence in the Spielberg uh, family's lives, had fallen in love. I was convinced that what I found was going to be explained to me in an innocent way, and I would feel relieved and forever foolish to confront her, Stephen says. I showed her the film in the closet, and she started to tear up, and then she burst into tears and fell to the floor, sobbing. My life ended in that moment. Everything stopped. It was a freeze frame. And I started to do things that people do when horrible things happen to them, hoping it was a dream and that I'd wake up, hoping that my mom would come out of that, that fetal position and laugh hysterically, saying, I got you! I got you! But she didn't come out of that fetal position, Stephen continues. She was on the floor, sobbing, saying, Please don't tell your father. Please don't tell your father. The movie's a little bit different. She doesn't say anything, 
and Sammy, Stephen's alter ego in the Fablemans, promises he won't tell. For a long time, I considered making the movie without that scene. But the movie could not survive without that moment of truth and, for me, the moment of everlasting trauma. It hit me really, it really hit me with such sadness that you couldn't share that until now, Sue says. I felt so heartbroken. It was a shock reading about that, Annie says. It was like a slap in the face. I'm the, ba I'm the baby, and when I was born, there were always three adult, fa uh, three adult faces looking down at me when I was in a crib, so I didn't know my life without Bernie, Nancy says. He was a fixture, and we had no idea. He was our friend. That was a shock. She put her hands on her brother's shoulder, but I also felt so bad that you had to hold, out, hold that all those years. Sixty years now. Stephen is 76. Anne, who just made the drive in from Sherman Oaks, is 73, a screenwriter. She co-wrote Big, and, like her, her brother, a worrier and, a wonderf and wonderfully fun. Sue, 69, lives in Silver Springs, Maryland, and sports a short, cropped haircut, like her mom. She's a talker. Which, could, which you could say about all four of the siblings. None of them has much of a filter. Sometimes it's a lot to have, a, have us in the same room, says Nancy, 66, a film producer, who flew in from the Bronx for this gathering. When they're not together, a non-stop text chain keeps them close. During the making of The Fablemans, there were countless Zoom calls and emails about recreating their childhood home in Phoenix and getting the details of the clothing particularly Leia's, just right. But all the preparation and set visits couldn't prepare the women for the emotional wallop of watching the movie for the first time. Nancy and Sue saw it in New York first. When it was over, Stephen and producer Christy McCosco-Krieger walked in and the sisters were weeping. You looked a little afraid of us, she, Sue tells Stephen, laughing. I didn't know what to do, Stephen tells her, so we left, so we left to give you a little more time. Though the brother in him was at a loss, I asked Stephen if, in that moment, the filmmaker in him was thinking, it worked. It worked. Oh, he knew, Nancy and Sue say in unison. He loved that reaction, Sue said. Stephen smiles. I think the brother in me wanted to apologize for putting them through this. The sisters are laughing the whole time he's talking, and the filmmaker in me thought, okay, well, it worked on them. And he saw... Uh, the movie a week later in Los Angeles and started crying during an early moment in which Paul Dano, playing their father, explains how movies work. She has since seen the film seven more times, one more than Nancy. Sue has seen it more times than she can count. It's an addiction, she says, and even though watching it stirs feelings of hurt and regret, the scene where the parents tell the children they are divorcing remains particularly raw. Each viewing also allows them to revisit a time when Leia and Arnold were alive, and with them providing love, guidance, and support. It helps us visit them whenever we want, Nancy says. Annie smiles. I stream it often just to watch certain scenes, she says. It brings them back. Leia and Arnold divorced in 1966. The next year, Leia married Bernie. The hard feelings remained for years. The children, now adults, learned more about what went on even if they didn't always want to hear it. My mom would say, I want to tell you something, and I'd be like, maybe you don't want to tell me, Mom, Nancy says, laughing. My mother said one thing to me about their camping trip that showed there was an intimacy unbeknownst to us, Anne says. 
they'd sleep in their sleeping bags under the stars, unzipped uh, if the weather allowed, and Dad would be holding her hand on one side and Bernie would take her hand on the other side. After Bernie died at the relatively young age of 75, Arnold, who had remarried a woman named Bernice, reconnected with Leia, and the three of them became close, attending concerts together at Disney Hall and sharing many meals at the Milky Way. It went from Bernie to Bernice, Stephen says. It became a new trio. I often say that if my parents, when I was hysterically crying about the divorce, had just said to me, don't worry, because in about 40 years we're going to, have to, be, we're going to be the best of friends, I might not have had such a hard time. Maybe, Nancy says. Bernice died in 2016 and was laid to rest next to her first husband. Not long after, the siblings approached their father, asking if he would consider being buried next to Leia and Bernie at Hillside Memorial Park. We wanted to bring him home, Annie says, but we didn't know what his reaction would be, being next to Bernie. And he said, I'll think about it. Nancy laughs. He's 97. How long are you going to think about it, Dad? Ultimately, Arnold ag uh, agreed with one stipulation. He wants to be next to Leia and not next to Bernie. And that's exactly how it's laid out, Sue says. Mom's between Arnold and Bernie. I'm not sure who uh, she's looking at, though, Nancy says, smiling. She's probably going back and forth. And that was Meet the Real Fablemans by Glenn Whip, voted by Devin Oktar Yalkim, and Topography by Jessica Molina. From the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, February 23rd, 2023. And now here's something from comicbook.com. This is called Bob Iger's Potential Disney Replacement Reveal by Adam Barnhart, March 4th, 2023. The second Bob Iger returned to Disney, it was made apparent that the executive's return was only a temporary measure until a new CEO could be found. Now a short list of potential executives to succeed Iger has surfaced with a surprising name coming from the echelon of professional sports. Saturday, word quickly spread that current NBA commissioner Adam Silver was one of the frontrunners to replace Iger as early as next year. Silver is currently under contract with the Basketball League through 2024. Other names on the list include Kevin Mayer, the executive that leads Disney's direct-to-consumer efforts through the launch of Disney+, Plus. shortly after Bob Chappick, was, Bob Chappick was named CEO after Iger's initial successor, Mayer departed Disney to run TikTok's operations within the United States. Now he currently runs Candle Media, a production company based in Los Angeles. Another name reported on the shortlist, according to initial reporting by Fox Business, is Dana Walden who is currently co-chief of Disney Entertainment. Walden has long been one of Iger's most trusted lieutenants, first joining the company in 2019 after a long stint at Fox Television. Earlier this year, Iger revealed that Disney has already formed a Disney succession planning committee, working to find the executive's replacement as soon as possible. Now it's time for another transformation, one that rationalizes our enviable streaming business and put on a path toward to sustained growth and profitability, while also reducing expenses to improve margins and better positioning us to weather future disruption, increased competition, and global economic challenges. 
we must also return creativity to the center of the company, increase accountability, improve results, and ensure the quality of our content and experience, as Iger said at the time. He added, now that details are our company is fueled by storytelling uh, and creativity, and virtually every dollar we ever we earn every transaction, every interaction with our consumers emanates from something creative. I've always believed that the best way to spread great creativity is to make sure that the people who are managing the creative process feel empowered. There's no definitive uh, timeline and when Iger's successor will be officially named. That was Bob Iger's potential Disney replacement reveal by Adam Barnhart, March 4th, 2023, from comicbook.com. All right, here's something from the site unitedwithisrael.org. Play ball. Israel's baseball miracle continues with World Baseball Classic. In 2017, Israel became the first qualifier to win a second round match at the World Baseball Classic. So what could Israel do to top it? By David Weissman from the Al Jemeiner. There are sporting miracles, and then there is the Israel national baseball team. In 2012, the team was trying to qualify for the World Baseball Classic for the first time and took on Spain for a precious spot. Unfortunately, the Israeli team lost to Spain in extra innings. Then, in 2017, the team successfully qualified for the World Baseball Classic. This time, it was successful, defeating Great Britain for that elusive spot. At the 2017 World Baseball Class, as the 2017 World Baseball Classic approached, there was a mixture of nerves and excitement. Then, the unexpected happened. In the opening match, Israel defeated the third-ranked South Korea team, following it up with wins against the fourth-ranked Chinese Taipei and ninth-ranked Netherlands. Not only did Israel make it to the second round, but so did, did so undefeated. It then defeated fifth-ranked Cuba before losing to the Dutch and the top-ranked Japanese. This was a David and Goliath situation. Israel was the first qualifier to win a second-round match at the World Baseball Classic. So what could Israel do to top that? How about being just one of five teams in the world to qualify for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, joining, the, joining host country Japan in the six-team tournament? When Israel defeated South, America, South Africa in September 2019, it became the first Israeli team in a ball sport to qualify for the Olympics since the 1976 men's soccer team. At the Olympics, it lost to both the U.S. and South Korea in pool play. Israel then defeated Mexico, which was its only win at the Olympics. Another loss to South Korea set up an elimination match against the Dominican Republic. Taking a 6-5 lead into the bottom of the ninth inning, Israel lost 7-6, finishing in fifth place. And now we find ourselves back at the World Baseball Classic, the tournament where it all began six years ago. There was a lot of anticipation, not just to see how Israel does this time, but also because Israel's opening matches are in Miami, where it should receive significant fan support. Israel is in Pool D with Puerto Rico, Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua easily the toughest of the four pools. Israel has assembled a fantastic roster and is managed by Ian Kinsler, who played for Israel at the 2020 Olympics. Forget about nerves, this time it's all excitement and we can't wait to watch them. Play ball! That was 
play ball. Israel's um, baseball miracle continues with World Baseball Classic by David Weissman from the Alta Minor out of unitedwithisrael.org, March 5th, 2023. David Weissman is the co-founder of Follow Team Israel, a page devoted to sharing the stories of Israeli and Jewish sports with the world. All right, let's go to jewishjournal.com, and uh, we are in the Torah portion section. This is Table for Five, Tetzavah, Holy Fashion, for March 2nd, 2023, one verse by voices edited by Salvador Litvak, the accidental Talmudist. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. Exodus 28.2 Rivka Slonim, Ror Chabad Center, Binghamton University. Ever since God created man in his image, mankind has been returning the favor. <coughs> Frustrated by the inherent limitations of finitude, our best and brightest have consistently tried to foist the same constraints upon the Creator. It's either this or that, here or there, yes or no, it can't be both, our brains scream. In hopes of disabusing us of this profound error, Hasidic teachings explain that the cre- uh, Creator is best understood as Nima Hanim Naut. The enigma of all enigmas, or more precisely, the one for whom the concept of impossibility is possible. The Holy Temple was a place Jews went to see divinity and to be seen, to be touched and transformed. No wonder then that the vestment of the priests who served as facilitators of this experience were fashioned with an eye towards instruction. Jewish mysticism teaches that the term Kavod, dignity, alludes to the way in which a person is seen and affected by or affects of another. It speaks to the eminent, manifest, and therefore limited experience, the up-close and personal. The term Tiferet, adornment or splendor, references an almost amorphous quality, a subtle but definite state that at once resists the delineation while pervading all the impossible to conjure infinite beyond. The vestments of the high priest, Aaron, designed for both dignity and adornment, underscore a truth we struggle with constantly. God, creator of all binaries, both encapsulates and transcends them all. And when we attach ourselves to our divine core, we too can soar beyond the divide. Rabbi Scott N. Bolton, Congregation or Zarua. We are reminded that donning the right clothing for the sake of holiness is a Jewish value. Wearing garments befitting a nation of priests is an aesthetic that Torah helps us achieve. A principled approach to clothing is a Torah value. Every Jew with holy tasks uh, to accomplish has fashioned to embrace. From yarmulkes to tallytote to Magan David jewelry to synagogue attire, as we, a culturally distinct family, have holy missions to dress up for. Going back in history, imagine the wardrobe workshop right in the desert, near the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle. There was another in ancient Jerusalem for both temples. We were into holy fashion. The Kohanim needed the right uniforms, and the high priest's vestments as outlined needed updates and replacements. New garments were stitched over the years depending on the size of those who needed them. 
technology developed for cloth making, thread spinning, dyeing, designing, and cutting. The fashion of the priests impacted the experience of worshippers. I imagine when pilgrims left, women and men alike got ideas, consciously or otherwise, about how to change their everyday dress despite their paucity of material. There was something connected to the eternal and the power of our sacred ritual in how robes lay, tassels fall, outer cloaks cover undergarments. Imagine seeing Aaron in his wraps and hairdress, Miriam in her prophetess regalia. I imagine hearts, minds, and souls yearn for a little for capes like theirs and for a wardrobe that reflected the noble spirit of our ancestors. So dignified, holy adornment, we must wear them well. Leia Saul, author, Sisterhood of the Copper Mirrors. Does this look good? Does this look okay on me? The wife asked her husband as they dressed for a wedding. With a glance, he said, There'll be 600 people there. Does it matter? He had a point. Yet even in a crowd, we can be noticed. How we dress influences how we feel and behave and influence others' responses to us. We've all had the experience of carrying ourselves differently with different outfits. One question we can ask as we study this pasuk is, are we being intentional about what we are looking to express and communicate to ourselves and the world? Moshe is told to make holy garments for his brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. The clothes of the high priest were beautiful. He had mystical symbolism and spiritual messages. That high level of transcendence is something a spiritual seeker can learn from and strive for. Next week we celebrate Purim. In the Megillah, we see Azurus don the clothes of the high priest that were taken from the temple. The same garments bring an entirely different message. Are you willing to dig deeper? Consider how you represent yourself and even your nation in the way you dress. What's your motivation when you adorn or not yourself? Is it honorable? Dignified? Do you dress with self-respect and sensitivity to those around you? You can joyfully use Purim to express or explore aspects of your inner world. We can elevate all parts of our life, including our clothes, if we are mindful and intentional. Denise Berger, Freelance Writer This pasuk is a blueprint for Jewish leadership. Moshe Rabinu is known as the greatest Jewish leader of all time, and here he is being told directly by God to make holy garments for his brother for the sake of dignity and adornment. How often does the CEO or a head of state or school principal do a project for a staff member, even one as high as ranking as Aaron? That's Aaron. It's definitely not the norm. To the contrary, a leader status is often expressed precisely by eschewing such things. God is highlighting the sibling relationship. This instructs the Jewish people that although it is natural and common for rivalry to exist between brothers, references to the entire first book of the Torah, this is not what Hashem wants for us. The previous parsha, Teruma, is all about the construction of the Mishkan Tabernacle, where Aaron, as the high priest, will be running the show. A lot of high-achieving brothers might feel tension at this juncture when one is ascending in prominence and the other, since he is not a Kohen, has no access uh, to that pathway. God is making very clear that we each offer our own distinct contribution and there is no space for competition. Lastly, Moshi is to embark upon this task for the sake of dignity and adornment. It's not enough to silently accept another person's unique role.
a Jewish leader must also help that person shine. Rabbi Nicole Gusick, Sinai Temple Ten years ago, I remember walking through Sinai Temple and a mother stopped me in the hallway. She pointed to her, her then three-year-old daughter and began to share, Rabbi, I want you to know that because you wear a kippah, our daughter insists on wearing a kippah. Her daughter turned around and there it was, a kippah that perfectly matched my own. As we know, not many young women choose to wear a kippah. The act reminds me that others are watching watching not only what I put on my head, but also watching how I speak, listen, and behave. The reminder isn't meant to carve out a path for perfectionism. Rather, the reminder is an opening. People will notice if I value myself. People will notice if I am self-forgiving. People will notice if I live with dignity. People watch. My actions matter. Siforno, the Italian biblical commentator, explains that in his wearing of the sacral vestments, the priests should inspire awe, inspire awe among the Israelites. What a beautiful mission to inspire awe. It may mean awe for our creator or awe for our tradition. Or perhaps awe is another word for motivation. Just as the Israelites were inspired by the actions of the priest, we too might be surprised who is inspired by our leadership more subtle by our more subtle displays of leadership it is never just a kippah inspiration and motivation come in ways we might least expect and that was table for five tetzave holy fashion by Sal one verse five voices edited by Salvador Litvak, the accidental accidental talmudist from march 2nd 2022 23 that is all right now here's something called this poem counts as rabbinic school, a poem for Parsha Tetzaveh. I'm what's known as a cantorial song leader, and by what's known, I mean I made that term up. By Rick Lupert, March 2nd, 2023. You shall slaughter the ram, take some of its blood, and put it upon the thumbs of their right hands, and upon the big toes of their right feet. Exodus 29:20. I'm what's known as a cantorial song leader. And by what's known, I mean I made that term up to refer to what I am lucky enough to stand before the people of Israel and do. Most people say cantorial soloist is, uh, most people say cantorial soloist, but that term rubs me the wrong way in that this work isn't about what I can do, but wholly about what I can do, the people, when I can get the people to do. Speaking of rubbing, I'm reminded how many paths to becoming clergy of one kind or another there are. You might be given semicha by colleagues who have determined you have learned what there is to learn. You might attain an advanced degree at an institution of higher learning after years of study in a thoughtfully curated program. It's possible the rabbi might be away on a trip and ask you to say the things that need to be said on a Friday night since he's seen you do it before and he has all the confidence. And then there are the oldest ways, the ways involving the blood of a ram, this time smeared on your right ears, the thumb of your right hand, and the big toe of your right foot. Sorry, lefties. Later on, you'll wave both the breast of the ram of perfection and the thigh of the uplifting in the air, like you do care, before you eat it, as a sign to the Lord before you eat it and become fully invested. Times have changed, and I don't think much happens involving waving meat in the air at rabbinic school, maybe a cantorial school. You need a lot of energy to sing Kol Nidre. I do know everyone has the potential to give blessing, or better yet, to show the ones being blessed that, there are, they, that they are a blessing. 
but just in case, pass me the tofu thigh of uplifting. There's work to be done here. That was This Poem Counts as Rabbinic School, a poem for a Parsha Tetzava by Rick Lupert, March 2, 2023. Los Angeles poet Rick Lupert created the Poetry Superhighway, an online publication and resource for poets, and hosted the Cobalt Cafe weekly poetry reading for almost 21 years. He's authored 26 collections of poetry, including God Wrestler, a poem for every Torah portion, I'm a Jew, Are You, Jewish-themed poems, and Feeding Holy Cats, poetry written while a, a staff member on the first Birthright Israel trip, and most recently, I am not writing a book of poems in Hawaii, poems written in Hawaii, Ain't Got No Press, August 2022, and edited the anthologies Ekphrasia Gone Wild, a poet's Haggadah, and the night goes on all night. He writes the daily webcomic Cat and Banana with fellow Los Angeles poet Brendan Constantine. He's widely published and reads his poetry wherever they let him. Okay, and we go into this one. Mordecai superstar Purim Spiel promises to be funny and meaningful. Hassan Mike Stein of Temple Aliyah has a personal connection to Mordecai Superstar, the Purim Shapil he is writing and directing this year, by Deborah Eckerling, February 28, 2023. Hassan Mike Stein of Temple Aliyah has a personal connection to Mordecai Superstar, the Purim Shapil he is writing and directing this year. Stein was in the original Broadway cast of Jesus Christ Superstar in 1971. He played the role of Peter. Mordecai's Superstar will be Stein's Purimspiel swang song because after 23 years, he will retire as cantor of Temple Aliyah at the end of June. I have so much fun writing the spiel every year, and this year is especially meaningful, Stein said. I thought, why not go out with a bang? Even asked some of his friends in the original cast of Jesus Christ Superstar to join the show. During the pandemic, a group from the 1971 Broadway production started meeting on Zoom every week. Stein joined the group about a year ago after he learned about it from fellow cast member Charlotte Crossley. All of our reminiscing about the show and how we were all so fortunate to have been on Broadway at the time as very young people created a bond, he said. So Superstar was on my mind. When Stein writes the spiel, he cuts and pastes the original words from the play he is parroting and then manipulates the text to make it fit with the story. He explained, What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. Became, What's the spiel? Tell me what's happening. Hey, Shlemiel, tell me what's happening. I don't know how to love him because I don't know how to tell him, sung by Queen Esther as she reveals that she is Jewish. Writing this play brings back so many memories, Stein said. I can hear the original singers as I write the words to the songs. I remember what I was doing on stage while they were singing. We were a close-knit group, many expats from hair, and most of us were hippies more than actors. Doing a Purim spiel is what Stein loves most about the holiday. The spiel helps us laugh at ourselves, he said. We take a conflict that has the potential to destroy our people and we make, it, make light of it. Unfortunately, this is how we have faced so many similar situations and what gives the Jewish people her sense of humor and irony. Stein's favorite part of the story is the idea of Jewish identity, trying to assimilate and then, when it matters the most, unmasking and showing who you really are. 
There is a sense of triumph that God, the good can overcome evil, he said. And throughout the story, God's name is not mentioned, but we know that God is there in the mix. Permspiels also create community. There's a core of actors and singers uh, doing our Purim plays for over 20 years, he said. It keeps expanding as people come and go, and there is anticipation all year long about the play's name, casting, etc. This is what synagogue life is about. When asked what people can expect from this performance, Stein said, to laugh and laugh and laugh again. Superstar was not a comedy, so some of the seriousness rubbed off, and some moments have a taste of introspection from Mordecai and Esther. It's a little bit irrelevant, but that is to be expected from a spiel. I hope people walk away with a bit of a taste of what I experienced on Broadway. After Jesus Christ Superstar, Stein was in the original roadshow of the Who's Tommy. He settled down, had a family, and joined the United States Navy Band White House unit in Washington, D.C. He played the fiddle for four presidents at the White House and around the world. After retiring from the Navy, Stein became a full-time cantor in Washington, D.C. before moving to L.A. and joining Aaliyah. I have come full circle, Stein said. I have been so fulfilled as cantor of Temple Aaliyah for 23 years, but writing and directing this spiel allows me to draw on experiences that mean so much to me from my past. It feels really good. Temple Aaliyah and Shomrai Temple are teaming up for poem events this year. Mordecai's Superstar will be performed at Shomrai Torah in West Hills at 7 p.m. on March 6. For more information, go to templealiyah.org slash Purim. That was Mordecai's Superstar Purim Spiel Promises to be Funny and Meaningful by Deborah L. Eckerling, February 28, 2023. And speaking of Purim, here's another story with regards to that. This is called The Story of Esther Gets the Graphic Novel Treatment. In the graphic novel, the story of Esther comes to life with stunning drawings by Israeli illustrator Yale Nathan and dynamic storytelling that's easy for all ages to read by Kylie Ora Lobel, March 2, 2023. Four years ago, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, a former editor of the Batman comics and the creator of the Birds of Prey, released a Passover Haggadah graphic novel. The illustrations were vivid and beautiful incorporating traditional and modern-day teachings and themes into the pages. Now the comic book veteran has come out with the Corin Tanakh graphic novel, Esther, just in time for Purim. With superheroes, when you have a success, you immediately think sequel, Gorfinkel said. Following the release and thank God success of the Passover Haggadah graphic novel, the number one question I got was, you're doing Purim next, right? The Megillah, which includes Hebrew text to make it kosher, a requirement for any Megillah reading, has English in the speech bubbles within the panels. The book has blessings that people say before and after reading the Megillah as well. Gorfinkel said, The tradition is to read the Megillah in the language you can understand. So if you prefer, you can also read the captions and word balloons. In the graphic novel, the story of Esther comes to life with stunning drawings by Israeli illustrator Yael Nathan and dynamic storytelling that's easy for all ages to read. For the author, who worked at DC Comics for nearly a decade and makes weekly Jewish comic strips on his website, JewishCartoon.com, writing female-driven stories is in his wheelhouse. 
birds of prey is about a group of women vigilantes who go on global missions to bring about justice. In 2020, it became a movie starring Margot Robbie as the lead Harley Quinn. Gorfinkel loves the story of Esther because she's a superhero like the ones in the comics he worked on. Esther Hadassah is the OG Wonder Woman, he said. She is ripped away from her family, her land, and her people to serve in a foreign court, keeping a secret identity until the moment comes to step up and be a savior. Who wouldn't enjoy a graphic novel with this story? When Gorfinkel, or Gorf for short, isn't making graphic novels and comics, he's touring the world as a scholar-in-residence at Jewish organizations. He gives multimedia presentations and Jewish cartoon workshops with the theme, Make Judaism Your Superpower, to a people of all ages. My entire life, I could quote the superhero multiverse chapter and verse, he said. Now I want to generate Avengers-level engagement and excitement with the most exciting, successful, and proven multiverse in history, chapter, and verse, Torah. The story of Esther is filled with heart-pounding moments that ultimately evoke a sense of pride in Jews who admire the heroine of Purim for her strength during some of our people's darkest days. Though Gorfinkel's newest release is a graphic novel, something that is often produced for children, it's really something that Jews of any age and background can enjoy. Given the playful nature of Purim, my team and I designed the content to be child-friendly, but most assuredly not childish, she said. More advanced readers will appreciate the layers of depth and powerful expression of the story's timeless themes. The only person who will frown on our effort will be ha uh, will be ha Heyman. Spoiler alert, it does not end well for him. And that was The Story of Esther Gets the Graphic Novel Treatment by Kylie Ora Lobel. March 2nd, 2023. All right, and uh, let's conclude with this one from the community section. Rabbis of L.A., Rabbi Aria and Sharona Kaplan, MSW, providing Jewish learning to campus life. The Kaplans provide Jewish learning and social opportunities on campus, lunch and learns weekly Shabbat experiences and holiday programs and advice on personal or halachic questions. By Judy Grun, February 28, 2023. You never guess from speaking with Rabbi Arie and Sharona Kaplan that they've been working deep in the trenches of college campus life since 2004. High school sweethearts from Teaneck, New Jersey, who met through NCSY, the young couple went to work for the Orthodox Union's Jewish Leaders Learning Initiative at UCLA Hillel when they were barely older than the students themselves. Nearly 23, 20 years later, their enthusiasm and energy for their work remains palpable. The Kaplans provide, a Jewish, provide Jewish learning and social opportunities on campus, lunch and learns, weekly Shabbat experiences and holiday programs, and advice on personal or halakhic questions. They also serve as mentors and role models. Their success on campus led to their becoming directors of OU-JLIC's West Coast Operations in 2016, training other rabbinic couples and offering tactical and visionary support for programming. The OUJLIC model is novel because both partners are individually hired and compensated. The wife isn't simply a plus one to the rabbi, Sharona observed. Young adults are looking for models of marriage, and the structure of the OUJLIC network is sensitive to that. About 20 couples who met through the Kaplan's programs have married, 
four of whom went on to work on campus for OUJLIC. With six children having been born during the Kaplan's tenure, students have had plenty of opportunities to see a large, vibrant Jewish family thrive, particularly at their Shabbat tables, though Kaplan kids are also seen in the Hillel Lounge, playing ping-pong and talking with students. Rabbi Aryeh noted that their kids have learned to appreciate the plurality in Judaism, engaging all Jews and not labeling any as other. Despite consistent anti-Semitism on campuses nationwide, the Kaplan's happily report that most Jewish students they see are proudly Jewish, wearing the stars of David and enthusiastic about participating in activities. Rabbi Aryeh said many have transferred from a junior college and their happiness in being a part of a vibrant Jewish community is not diminished by concerns of anti-Semitism. Many also missed out on a gap year or had truncated high school experiences due to COVID. They have a can-do attitude and want to fully participate in Jewish life on campus. Quarterly Shabbatons that had drawn only 50 to 60 students in years past now draw upwards of 150, with some students bunking on their friends' dorm rooms uh, to participate. Many students choose UCLA specifically for its strong Jewish life. With a daily minion, kosher food on campus, and a vibrant Hillel, they come and feel, I've arrived, Sharona noted. Fortunately, campus politics are a non-issue for most students who are not chasing it. Another bright spot, despite talk about the entitlement mindset of Gen Z, that Kaplan see a high level of gratitude among students. Unsolicited, many tell us how lucky they are to have this programming. They are blown away by what is available, both qualita qualitatively and quantitatively. We regularly get calls asking for programming on other campuses as well, Sharona said. The couple also received a grant from the OU in partnership with JNF USA to launch a West Coast branch of OU JLIC's Yavne Fellowships, which trains students on campus for leadership positions within their campus community. One of their students' leaders, who took exceptional efforts to keep the OU JLIC programming running during COVID, was hired upon graduation to oversee and nurture the next generation of student leaders. Currently, there are 97 students in the Yavena program at California universities, primarily in Southern California. If UCLA is any example, Jewish students view their Judaism positively. We're seeing, the exception, seeing exceptional things, Rabbi Arya said. At Southwestern Law School, between 60 and 70 students are attending a weekly Torah lunch and learn. On a recent Thursday night, more than 100 attended a challah bake. Food is always a draw. It creates an easy opportunity to mingle and provides an accessible uh, touchpoint to Judaism, Sharona explained. Next up, a hamantash and bake to keep the momentum going. Many of the student-led programs, such as the holiday events and learning opportunities, are so popular because students have their finger on the pulse of things. They know the optimal time and location for their peers, and the programming they run can be hotter than top-down professional programming, she added. The Kaplans avoid burnout by getting out of town for occasional professional conferences with uh, colleagues or visits to family. And because their demographic is dynamic, turning over every few years staleness is less of a problem. We have to pivot and reevaluate what works. We've also learned to work with more synchronicity and intention and manage our efforts so we don't drain ourselves, Rabbi Arya said. Sometimes less is more. The Kaplans are thankful for the sponsors who make their work possible. 
the Orthodox Union, the Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles, Hillel at UCLA, and hundreds of individual donors, including many of their own alumni. Fast Takes with Rabbi Arya and Sharona Kaplan, Jewish Journal. What is your favorite Jewish food? Arya, orange beef from Shanghai Kosher Garden, Sharona, frozen yogurt all day, every day. Journal, ready to go to relax. Sharona, I love relaxing with our family at the beach. Aria, I love watching the UCLA Bruins play at the Poly Pavilion. Juna, favorite word, both. Optimal. It's become our brand, describing the students we work with and our life in L.A. And that was Rabbis of L.A., Rabbi Aria and Sharona Kaplan, MSW, Providing Jewish Learning to Campus Life, by Judy Gruen, February 28, 2023. Let's get in a few ads to conclude. And uh, to reserve your market marketplace ad, call 213-368-1661. Ad, space reservation and ad materials deadlines are 12 p.m. Thursdays. Here's one. Keep up with what's happening in town, jewishjournal.com slash calendar. And folks, you know what? I think this will just about take us to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.